I am directionally challenged. I've mentioned it before. I readily admit it. There's rarely a time when I am headed somewhere that I don't have a Google, Google Maps up. Despite that fact, one of my jobs when I was younger was delivering pizzas. And I did that before a cell phone, before even a GPS device. Didn't have any of that. All I had was an actual map. Now, there were a few times that I had to do some personal recalculating because the map, the route that I had mapped out for myself actually wasn't possible. And you can guess that in those trips, on those trips, the pizzas didn't fare so well. But for the most part, I was able to make my way around town without Google Maps. Now, imagine, though, earlier explorers, when they were going places where few, if anybody, had ever been. There were no maps for these places. What did they do for directions? How did they help direct themselves? Well, as early as the 1100s, compasses were invented. So you have the Earth with these magnetic poles in the north and the south, and that can provide direction if you have something that tells you where those poles are. I also read that the ancient Minoans, who lived on the island of Crete from 3000 to 1100 BC, they used the stars to navigate all around the Mediterranean. And then later on, when these seafaring explorers went through, went across vast distances, the ocean, they would still use the stars to navigate, but they needed a couple different tools to help them do that. They needed a clock to know what time of day it was, or night, rather. They needed an almanac to know the positions of the stars for each season. And they needed this little tool called a sextant that was measured the distance between the stars and the horizon. And that helped them fix their eyes on the right star at the right time and be able to navigate. So it helped to have these, these tools to make sure and fix their eye on the right star. Now, we're on a journey. Believers are on a journey. Jesus compares the Christian life to following a path that leads to life. Paul compares it to running a race. There's a course set out and you have to stay on that course. He talks about people wandering from it. At the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he talks about how he had finished his course. But in that same letter, he talks about people who had wandered off. And so you could describe the Christian life as a course, a, a journey that we're on. That we're on for our entire lives. It's only at the end of our lives that we reach that final destination. So how do we make sure that we're going in the right direction? How do we keep our eyes fixed on the right direction? As with either a compass or these tools that I mentioned, they, there is a fixed reality, the stars and, and the poles. There's a fixed reality that gives you direction. Scripture is our fixed reality. This is the fixed point that we focus on. It shows us how to follow Christ. It shows us how to trust in him and follow him. And as I mentioned Back in October, we had a message similar to this one. We affirm here, we believe the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. So only scripture, or scripture is our only final authority in the church. However, there are a lot of people that read the Bible. A lot of people that interpret the Bible. And the same one that we do, and they come up with a different destination. So how are we to know we're using the scriptures the way that we ought to? Well, thankfully, God hasn't left us simply to ourselves. He's 
given us his spirit to animate our attention to the word. And he's also given us teachers to equip the saints. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.13. Teachers, Paul tells teachers in 2 Timothy that they need to rightly handle the word of truth. Not only that, but we are on this journey together. We need to keep that in mind. The New Testament consistently describes the Christian life as one done together. Certainly there, there are exceptions where somebody is going to some place where there aren't any other Christians. You have the Ethiopian eunuch, missionaries. Those are the exceptions. The norm throughout the New Testament is Christians doing this together. We're following Christ together. So you have Paul talk about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. When you trust in Christ, you need to walk in a manner that fits with what you believe. But he always goes on to talk about unity in the church. Ephesians 4, he does this. He does something similar in Philippians 1.27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you all, that you all are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So together, we have this fixed point that we are focused on. That's giving us guidance, helping us navigate to our final destination. But we need to be equipped to do that. And again, that's where teachers come in. Paul talks to teachers. He, he was teaching teachers in the pastoral letters. Teachers like Timothy. He tells them to hold on to the teaching that he would passed on. The CSB translates 2 Timothy 1.13 this way. Paul said, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. So what Paul taught, what he's saying is, what he taught was from Christ himself. Just a few verses, he describes himself, just a few verses earlier, I read he referred to himself as a herald, apostle, teacher. All of those are pointing to the fact that Christ had entrusted him with this message that he was now proclaiming to others. And so Christ had entrusted this truth to him. He was then passing it on to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he tells Timothy to do the same. He says in 2 Timothy 2.2, What you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we have the scriptures. But God gives us teachers. Paul isn't talking to churches in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy and Titus. He's talking to teachers. He's telling them that they need to guard the good deposit entrusted to them. They're to guard this apostolic teaching, again, that's in Scripture. And they're to do that, not just by physically preserving the word. They're not just making sure that the word stays around. They are preserving it through making sure to guide it, to rightly divide it so that we follow it the way that we're supposed to. So, teachers are called to do really two things to do that, two sides to that. As we guide people, we are, one, we're teaching the truth, but then we're also correcting error. You see that, again, in the pastoral epistles. So we have, again, we have the scriptures for our stars, for our fixed guide, but teachers then help provide guidance in following the scriptures correctly. And teachers like pastors, like myself, we do that through preaching the sermon. 
the Sunday gathering. When we, when we gather together, that's part of what I'm doing. We do that in smaller groups. We do that in more personal encounters with personal meetings or counseling. But there's something else that Paul does in the pastoral letters that's very interesting. He, again, he's giving Timothy and Titus these instructions, these leaders. And what he does is he refers to what he calls trustworthy sayings. These are short summary statements about truth in Scripture. He's summarizing big ideas in, in very small summaries. And even some sections that he, he doesn't call them trustworthy sayings, you find in the pastorals these, these summaries of the gospel, summaries of his teaching. And so he gives that to these teachers to pass on to their congregations. And it's not just in the pastorals. You find these short summaries throughout the New Testament. So Paul, what, I would say the shortest summary of what we believe is stated in Romans 10.9. It's kind of a confession. He says, what we believe, what we confess is that Jesus is Lord. Easiest summary of what we believe. That's kind of expanded in 1 Corinthians 15.3, where Paul says what he was passing on to them. This is what he was entrusted with. He's passing on the, to them that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and he goes on to list other appearances. So he lists out these things that they believe. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.6 or 3.16. List out these truths about Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Just listing out these truths that they believe and that we believe. So these are short and memorable statements that are given to the church so that we remember what is important, what we need to fix our eyes on. They're guide rails for us. And what has happened is throughout church history, Christians have continued to do that. They've continued to try to summarize the big truths, the things that we need to keep our eyes focused on. And teachers have done this. They've been, they have rightly divided the word. They've attempted to rightly divide the word to give us these truths. And they've done that through what are called creeds. So mentioned the Apostles' Creed this morning. Unlike the summaries found in Scripture, the Apostles' Creed is not our authority. But insofar as it does point us to truths in Scripture, we ought to use it. It's a, it's a guide for us. It's a help for us. It helps us worship. It protects us from false teaching, as we're going to see. So when you think of the Apostles' Creed, you could think of it in a rote way. People memorize it and just repeat it. That is not helpful. It's not helpful for us to do that. God doesn't simply want us to memorize truth. You've ever heard, oh, you should memorize the Bible. The Bible never suggests simply memorizing the Bible. Why does the psalmist say that he had stored up God's word in his heart? He says, that I might not sin against you. He had a reason for the memorization. When Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy here to hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that he had heard from him, he told him to do that in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So John Lonsma, in commenting on that verse, he explains, Paul's concerns transcend mere formal content dotting the doctrinal I's and encompass both that and the whole life to which the good news gives rise. These creeds then, like the Apostles' Creed, they're only helpful if when you remember them, when you think about what you're summarizing when you say them, it impacts your life. 
then it is helpful. The word creed comes from a Latin word for belief. Those creeds, they start with that word. So in the Latin, these creeds start with credo or credimus or credimus, something like that. It's from the Latin word. So they begin with a word, and so they became known as creeds for that reason. But they're just statements of what we believe. If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, though, you may have noticed when the kids got up here that they didn't say certain lines. That is not because we don't believe those lines. We do believe in the, the conception of by the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth. We just thought we'd make it a little simpler for the kids. Um, but here, again, is the Apostles' Creed more completely. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed comes from the second century. So despite the legend about it, it was not written by the Apostles. But it can still be referred to as the Apostles' Creed, as D.A. Carson points out, because the summary of what is given in the Creed reflects the doctrine of the Apostles, the doctrine of the New Testament in summary form. Now, usually, what a creed would, when a creed would arise, there'd be somebody in the church professing to be a Christian and saying, no, you know, you know what, the, the Bible teaches something different. And so, believers got around that issue, that false teaching, and they addressed it through a creed. So, one of the earliest heresies, one of the earliest false teachings in the first, or the second and third centuries is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism rejected the idea that God created the world. It rejected the incarnation. It rejected bodily resurrection because of certain beliefs they held about matter. And so when we listen to the Apostles' Creed, you can see some of those things in the Creed. But the Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest creeds in church history. And so it actually just focuses in on the central truths that we believe. That's why that you, you find it across denominations, you find it even in churches that we very much disagree with, like the Roman Catholic Church, because these are fundamental to what it means to believe in Christ. It does bring up something else you may have noticed in what I said. So even though the kids left some things out, you might notice that I changed something and made a couple adjustments to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, If you're familiar with the Creed, you might have been waiting to hear the word Catholic in it. I left out that word. I I inserted the word universal. The Greek behind the Apostles' Creed actually uses this Greek word, Catholicane. It's where we get our term Catholic from. But that was not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. So just avoiding the confusion, we, uh, a number of other churches have put in the word universal as, as a best explanation of that word. I also left out the words, he descended into hell. I did that for a few reasons. One, I agree with those, uh, including John Piper, who says, there is no textual basis in the New Testament for claiming that between Good Friday and Easter, 
Christ was preaching to souls imprisoned in hell or Hades. But even if that were true, I also agree with John MacArthur, who describes that kind of a teaching as a non-essential. It doesn't belong in this creed with these central ideas. On top of that, when you look at the earliest version of this creed, it doesn't mention that line. That came in later. So we just, like many other churches, like our own, just left it out. What you also notice in the creed is there's a Trinitarian framework to it. It begins with the Father, and it mentions the Son, and then it mentions the Spirit. It also begins with creation, and then it focuses on redemption, and then it ends with the application that has for us. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go through that creed. We're going to go through it this morning. But again, we're going through it. The goal is to show that these are, this is a summary from God's Word. So we're going to focus on various texts. Uh, we'll, and at the end of it, we will actually read it together. But we won't do that quite yet. So, we, um, I just want, just to be clear again, this is, this is our foundation. This is kind of like an outline. The Apostles' Creed is an outline for scriptural truth. That's what we're going to look at. And we need to bear in mind that this is not just something that we memorize and say in a rote way. We do this because these are the truths that have transformed our lives. And they're also the central truths of the faith that keep us on this path, following Christ, keep us from wandering off into error, as we'll see again. So let's begin. We, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. As we start, we start at the beginning. You know, the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that the triune God was involved in creation, but the consistent New Testament description of it puts the Father as the ultimate agent, always. So John 1.3 puts it this way, and speaking of Christ, he says all things were made through him. Hebrews 1.2 also says that the Father created the world through the Son. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 8.6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You could mention the Spirit's activity in creation as well. But in each case, the Father is still the ultimate agent described. And so this is faithful description. You could put it this way. The Father created the universe through the Son by means of the Spirit. So that is foundational. He also uses a very important term here, almighty. It's actually a Greek word again. Uh, the first copies of the Apostles' Creed, there was Latin and Greek, but the Greek one is a, there's a word that's used in the Bible to describe God. It's translated almighty. It's made up of two words, both in Greek and in English, right? Almighty. And the Greek word for mighty means to, it means the power to rule and control. So if we talk about almighty, it means all power to rule and control. So it's including the idea that God has the right to rule and that he is able to rule over everything. In Revelation 19.6, there's this cry of celebration where it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And that's foundational to the gospel. That, this idea, it's very helpful to start with this because it's foundational to what we believe about the good news. We believe in God the Father who created 
and reigns over everything. He's not the God of Gnosticism that said, oh, matter is evil and God didn't create that. No, he, he did create it. He is not the God of the deists who, who have a God that's just kind of like a cosmic watchmaker. He made everything and then wound it up and stepped back and just let it function on his own. That's not God. Not, not, God, not the God of the Bible. He's not the God of the pantheists or panentheists who say that God and the universe are, are somehow connected. This is a God who in his transcendent power created the universe distinct from himself and in his imminent presence reigns over that. And, and that matters for our lives, not just for those who believe. Understand what this is saying. For, this matters for everyone. There is a God who made everything and he is con- in control of it. He rules it. And that means that one day we're all going to have to face that God. And the Bible also says that God will call us to account through his son. So we believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, when you look at the creed, the way it, it says that, you might think, well, is it saying that Jesus is God? It is, but it's using the terminology that's often found in Scripture. When Paul, for example, describes the Father and the Son, he tends to use God with Father and Lord with Jesus. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He does the same thing in Ephesians 4. Now, Paul can say, that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13 says, refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But often, Paul and the New Testament writers use the word Lord. Now, Lord is a translation for the name for God in the Old Testament. So it is still speaking to his divinity. And then you have only Son. That also speaks to his divinity. We just finished Matthew, and we saw the way that the disciples came to understand that Jesus was the Son of God in a way that they had not imagined before. In the Old Testament, it talked about the Messiah being the Son of God, just like David and his descendants were called the sons of God according to the promise given to them in 2 Samuel 7. But as the disciples are are observing Jesus and listening to his teaching, they come to understand that Jesus is the Son in a unique way. It's not just a human in relationship to the divine. He is the son in a divine way. And that's why Matthew ends the way that it does. Matthew ends with the disciples doing what is only good for people to do to God. They end by worshiping God, worshiping Jesus, who is God the son. So if you don't recognize Jesus' divinity and worship him, you don't believe the Bible. And what's more, if you claim to be a Christian, but you say, I don't believe that Jesus is God, you are a heretic. You believe false teaching, what is not in the Bible. So what this creed does is it it actually puts Jesus on display with equality with his father. The son and the father are divine. And that helps distinguish between true and false Christianity. So the Son is not just a different manifestation of God. He is a distinct person. 
And if you're unwilling to worship Jesus as Jehovah's Witnesses refuse to do, you do not hold to true Christianity. And if you do not acknowledge the exclusive sonship of Jesus, the only Son of God, like the Mormons fail to do, you do not believe true Christianity. So the Apostles' Creed describes Jesus in a way that differentiates us from those who don't believe the Bible. It also describes Jesus as Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one God promised in the Old Testament. He was going to send. He's the fulfillment of all God's plans. And then the, the creed goes on to summarize how Jesus did and will do that. It says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So the divine son enters into this creaturely existence by the mighty act of God, the Holy Spirit, through the womb of a virgin named Mary. Matthew gives us that description. We saw that in the first chapter of his gospel. He says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So he describes Mary's virginity, and then he actually uses the term when he quotes Isaiah 7. The Holy Spirit produced, brought this about. Luke does the same thing in, in chapter 1. So how is that central for us? How is the virgin birth central to Christianity? It establishes the uniqueness of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, there were other miraculous births where barren women or women well past childbearing years miraculously were given children. This is the only case where a child is given to a woman without the agency of a human father. There's nothing else like it in Scripture. It's absolutely unique. But at the same time, because Jesus is born of a human mother, he is what one creed describes truly human. Because of the agency of the Holy Spirit, it's pointing to the fact that he is not only human. He's also divine. He is truly God and truly man. So as Matthew describes Jesus as God with us. But as the Christ, he didn't come like he was expected to come. You know, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, <clears throat> they were shocked when people would say like what Paul said, Christ died. Paul uses this jarring language for any Jewish person to hear. The Messiah died. That is not what was expected. They were hoping Jesus was going to establish the kingdom in a way that got rid of Roman rule. But something else was necessary. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, some people look at this and think, well, why mention Pontius Pilate? He's kind of a minor character in the Bible. And that's true. But, he could have just said crucified, crucified, died, buried. But it does tie what happened to Jesus in history. There's actually a precedent for doing that. When the disciples describe what happens in Acts in their prayer, they specifically use Pontius Pilate's name. It shows us that what we believe is not just a tale. It's not just inspiring. It is a factual, historic event that happened to a man in history, in Israel 2,000 years ago. And there's historic records. 
Ken and I saw in Israel that tell us, hey, this is where Pontius Pilate was. It ties what we believe to history. The language of suffering is also important. You think, well, why does it say suffered and then crucified? Suffering is an important idea in, in the Bible. Jesus referred to what was going to happen to him in Matthew 16, 21. He says, then he must, that he, Jesus, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Peter uses this terminology throughout his letter. For example, in 1 Timothy, or sorry, 1 Peter 1.11, he mentions the sufferings of Christ, and he says that those sufferings were prophesied. They were talked about in the Old Testament hundreds of years earlier. You could look at Isaiah 53. That mentions what we would describe as the suffering servant, and Isaiah describes this servant who dies a sacrificial death, who dies in the place of others. He suffers on behalf of others. And that suffering took place historically and very importantly on a cross. That cross showed that Jesus was experiencing a punishment. Deuteronomy 21.23 says that a man hanging on a tree is proof that that man is cursed by God. That is, they're punished. So the crucifixion demonstrates that Jesus was experiencing the punishment for sin. He didn't die just any way. Now this, this idea, it, in modern times, people have thought it was problematic. They, they thought, well, this is just talking like it's cosmic child abuse. But we already know, for Matthew, that's not the case. Jesus willingly took this cup from the Father in, in Gethsemane. It was hard. It was difficult. But he willingly did that. He recognized that this salvation could only take place through this event. So, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Death and burial are also stated in the creeds. So there was no swooning. There was no fainting that happened. Jesus really died. Soldiers made sure of that when he, they jabbed the spear into his side. There's no question that Jesus really did die. And his burial was proof of, proof of that. We saw that again in Matthew. So the Docetists and modern Muslims are wrong when they say that Jesus died, did not die on the cross. He did. The Bible teaches that. Jesus died on the cross. There are people in modern times also who try to explain away Christianity. You have to explain, how in the world did Christianity arise if Jesus died? So people in modern times try to explain it away. Well, he didn't die. No. Jesus really died. He died and was buried. But that wasn't the end of the story, and that's why everybody has a problem with it. It wasn't the end of the story because he didn't die for his sin. He wasn't cursed for his sin. The third day he rose again from the dead. We just looked at this on Easter in Matthew. Jesus rose to resurrected new life. He was the first to taste of the eternal age. His, his human body right now is immortal, incorruptible. He's conquered sin, conquered death. So it, it was not a spiritual resurrection. Again, the New Testament is very clear. People try to get around this because they don't think it can happen. And they try to make this a spiritual thing. The Bible's very clear. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. 
And without that truth, Christianity is a sham. It is a, a pointless, futile practice apart from that resurrection. So if your version, again, if your version of Christianity lacks the resurrection of Jesus, it is not the Christian faith once for all delivered to the saints. Creed then states, he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Dan, not too long ago, preached on uh, the ascension. And, and we could add to that the session. That's not talked about as much, but it is talked about here in this creed. And it's the consistent testimony of the New Testament. This session, this seating. Jesus told the, the Jewish leaders, he warned them, here's what's going to happen. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He got that from Psalm 110, the language there. Ephesians 1.20 says that God the Father seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Peter expresses the significance of this. The significance of the ascension and session. He says in 1 Peter 3.22 that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the king, to Jesus. He has not shown it yet, though. Not to everyone. And the creed goes on to summarize what will happen when Jesus does show that he is reigning. It says, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The, the Bible speaks about that promise that Christ is coming back. He will come again. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, 27. He said, there's going to be no mistaking when I come. It says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He went on to explain in Matthew that he will judge the living and the dead. Revelation goes on to explain that in greater detail. So this is where everything is headed. Any person that's exploring Christianity needs to understand that what we believe calls for a response. That we're not just telling you truths that you can, you can just say, oh, that's, that's fine. I can believe that. It actually calls for a response. You need to trust in Jesus. When, you, when we understand what Jesus has done, we understand that it's for the good of those who believe. For those who respond with faith. So, we pass these truths on the way that Paul talks about doing that. And he told Timothy to do that in faith, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We pass these truths along for them to affect us so that we receive them in faith and we respond to them in the love that's animated by these truths. This is the historic Christian faith and it calls for a response. So when you hear what Jesus has done, what should you do? You should believe it. You should believe what this creed is saying, too, about what's going to happen. You're going to stand before this Jesus, and you will have no excuse. You can imagine, oh, that's never going to happen. But one day when you are standing before him, when you have just decided, ah, it's not going to happen, it's no big deal. When you stand before him, you will have no excuse. You will not be able to do anything other than accept your punishment at that time. So now is the time when you hear this truth. This is God's grace. 
to say, there's a way, it's coming. Don't let it catch you unaware. Recognize that there's a consequence for living your life however you want. It doesn't seem like there's a consequence now. But there really is. So now is the time to recognize that consequence. Before it's too late, to bend your knee to Jesus now. That's what these truths call for. So we would tell you, believe this. And join us as we follow Jesus together. We follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. Creed goes on to say that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Not a whole lot is said about the Spirit in this creed, but it does affirm his divinity. The Spirit is one of three persons in the triune God. So like the difference between a bicycle and a tricycle, we do not believe in abinity, but a trinity. We believe not merely in the divinity of the Father and the Son, but of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the person specifically described in the Bible as active in the believer's life, active in the church. And so it's fitting that after this statement about our belief in the Holy Spirit, it's followed by belief in the Holy Universal Church. Now, this is where conservative Christians get really nervous, especially if you use the word Catholic, right? We get really nervous. But you don't even have to use that. Even when I say universal, when you hear the word holy, Christians can get confused. We can think, that, that's not right. We're not a holy church. Well, Scripture says that Jesus died to make his people holy. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 say that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. The CSB translates it to make her holy. And he did that. He accomplished that through the cross. Trouble is we don't act holy, right? We are still sinners. We are not presumptuous We should not, I should say, we should not be presumptuous and and act like we've got it all put together. We don't. We're sinners in need of this grace. But we have been made holy by the holiness of Jesus. That's why the New Testament describes us as a holy temple, being built together through the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions it in Ephesians. Peter mentions it in 1 Peter. So we are positionally holy right now. Not because of our holiness that we do, but because of the holiness of Christ. We, we sang about that this morning. That's why believers are called saints. That word's gotten misused in many different ways in modern times. But the Bible refers to Christians as saints. And we believe that Jesus is saving more than just the people that are in our church. That's why it's beneficial to speak here of the Catholic or universal church. That term in Greek, Catholique, again, it just means the whole. It meant everybody who believes in Jesus throughout time. And it even could include those who have died. Everybody is a part of this community of believers, this universal church. But then there's a phrase that immediately follows this one, and it focuses in on the saints that we know. Describes this very important reality. So we, on the one hand, we know Jesus is doing more than he's just doing here. But we also believe very firmly in what is called the communion of saints. And again, it's not a reference to Roman Catholic saints. It's not what we believe. Paul referred to believers 
as saints. He, he wrote to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Corinth. He wasn't saying perfect people. He was saying those who are holy in Jesus. And John mentions this communion or fellowship that we share with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And because of that fellowship, we have fellowship with one another or communion with one another. So this is the word, the Greek word koinonia. It's used in the New Testament. It was used specifically for how believers interacted together in the local church in Acts 2.42. But it can extend beyond that. And Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians to talk about what the churches were doing to collect money for a church in Jerusalem that was hurting. So what this is talking about is a partnership. We have a partnership in the gospel. We need each other. We need each other in the local church, and at times we need to help out other churches that we know. There's a partnership that we have, and we need it for our survival. That's why God has provided us with these other saints. So we need each other. We believe in the communion of saints. And of course, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. For starters, we again believe that we are sinners. We believe we need forgiveness. And we believe that there is forgiveness of our sins through Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 26, 28. He said that his blood, his sacrificial death, was, it, it was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then throughout Acts, that's what the apostles preach. They preach that, that those who believe in Jesus, they receive forgiveness for their sins. So we believe in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And we believe in the resurrection of the body. Unlike the Gnostics, we don't think that our bodies are inherently evil. The great Christian hope is not a bodiless experience in heaven someday. That is not our hope. Now, it is true. When we die, we do mysteriously go to be with Christ. But not much in the Bible is talked about with that. So it is mysterious to us. We don't know much about it. What the hope is that we have, the hope that we are directed to in the Bible is consistently the resurrection. And it's the resurrection of our bodies. Philippians 3.20 says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Daniel 12.2 in the Old Testament talked about the resurrection. In Revelation 20, that's explained more clearly. It's good for us to meditate on this as our hope because we can get confused, especially at funerals. You will hear people refer to their loved ones who, who believe as though they had these new bodies now. They don't. Our hope is still, our, our confident expectation is that when Christ returns, they'll be raised first. That is when they will have these new bodies. We will as well, all who are here. And that's what we look forward to. And that's what we should meditate on. We look forward to that day and to life everlasting. We believe in a world without end. A new world. And I hear people, when they think about that, sometimes say that that's scary. I understand what they're saying. But, you know, I've never in my life talked to anyone who didn't want to keep living when their bodies were well and things were going great. I've never run into anybody who thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm done now. 
We naturally don't want to do that. So if you had a perfect body living in a perfect world with perfect communion with God, when would you want it to cease to exist? (laughs) Never. It's the difficulties of living in a world that's fallen, living with our sin. That's what makes us want to leave. That's what makes us want to be done with this. But, you know, even then, we're not hoping that we just cease to exist. That may be true for those who have no hope of glory. But that's not what we hope for. We hope for life with Christ anyways. And that's what this is. This everlasting life is. That's what we long for. The voice in Revelation 21 describes this well. He says at the end, of the end, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and to that we say, Come, Lord Jesus. So the Apostles' Creed is not our authority, but it's like a compass pointing to what is our authority. It points us to the scriptures. It points us to the truths that we hold to as Christians, foundational to what we believe. It points to the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. It points to this great hope that we have. So we can see from this creed, we can see where we are, where we're at, where we're headed So we need to hold fast to this apostolic teaching. And we can do that using and meditating on the teaching as summarized there in the Apostles' Creed. But we need to do that again in faith, hope, and love. So if you believe this creed that I've mentioned, if you believe this at this time, I'd ask you to say it with me. You can join me if you believe it. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Join me in prayer. Father, we know that the teachers in history are fallible. I am fallible. Every pastor is fallible. Every teacher is fallible. But we do thank you that, that sometimes they have rightly divided the word. They've given us good and helpful summaries of what we believe. We pray that we would be committed to your word above all, that no creed would become our final authority, but that inasmuch as they reflect the truths from your word and, and do so in a way that helps us focus on these central truths, that we would use them. Use them to guard us from error that we've seen, the many different ways that people have gone away from what the Bible teaches. We would recognize the error and that we would stay committed to and fixed on 
these truths, the gospel, the hope we have. That you'd grant us faith, hope, and love. That we would respond to these truths as we ought. We pray for anyone here who does not believe. I know that there's plenty of reasons that people have for saying they don't believe, but we also know that your word teaches us that the central reason why people do not believe is because they don't want you telling them what to do. We pray that you would cause them to see that you are good, that you are wise, your goodness itself, your righteousness and love itself. You didn't make us as those that you could just order around for for some wrong-headed desire that you want what is best for us. They would recognize that. They would turn from what is actually bad for them, following their own ideas about right and wrong and good and evil. They would turn from that. Trust in your son. They would be saved. They would join us. Pray also for those here who do believe these truths. We pray again that they would, as we dwell on them, as we remember them in this summary, that you would help us to continue to follow your son, that we would not be distracted by error, We ask for that because of the the empowerment of your spirit. And again, on the foundation of your word, because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.